You know, I appreciate the countenance in which Pastor Rip prays. There's always a smile on his face. Did you realize that? He always comes up with a smile. He always comes up to find to find the best in every situation. And that's what I appreciate about Pastor Rip. He's, I know he has hard days, like do all of us do. But you know what? I've never seen him down, really. <laughs> I don't live with him either. You're right. All right. Spoken from a true from a wife. <laughs> there you go. I love it. So we're in our Revelation study. We're in uh, chapter 21. This is going to be the second part of our uh, chapter study on 21. And I know that, you know, it seems like we're um, spending quite a bit of time here thinking about things that are way in the future. Because this isn't the rapture. This isn't imminent. This is something that's not going to be for a long time. It's going to be at least a thousand years from now, at least. Um, and so some might say, well, why do we spend so much time thinking about that, talking about that? Why do we want to teach about something that is going to be so far out in the future? Well, let me just say that I believe that it's important that we put long-term perspective in our daily thought living. Because when I can think long term, it can help my daily walk. You know, I've heard it said that days drag on, but years fly by. Think about that. Days drag on, but years fly by. And I know that sometime a day feels like five years, doesn't it? Sometimes we get really down in our days. But you know what? When I look at last year, it seemed like that did. that was like a week ago how quickly the years fly by. So it's important that we keep our long-term viewpoint based upon the things that really sets our joy. We've, We've talked about this so many times in the past. Happiness and joy are not the same. Happiness and joy are not the same. They don't have the same source. Happiness is based upon happenstance. In other words, when I'm feeling healthy, when my body's healthy, when I have money in the bank, and my relationships at home are well, are good, and my job is good, boy, I can be really happy. But any one of those things change, and all of a sudden my happiness can be fleeting. And all of a sudden I can be down in the dumps in a minute. But yet my joy is something that's different. I can be joyful when I'm not happy. Think about that. Why? Because the source of joy is not based upon our happenstance. Our source of joy is based upon our hope and promise for the future. For what God has in store for us is our source of joy through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's why people that age, that are in Christ, age so gracefully. Because they know that this is not their home anyways, that they're on a journey, and that they know that when they do take their last breath, they truly are going to a better place. Not just because we like to think it that way. Not just because people that die always go to a better place. No, that's not true at all. Those that have their foundation in Christ who has built their life upon Christ, they have a source of joy that the world cannot take away. That's why we can be joyful and not happy all the time. Now, sometimes they go together, and it's a blessedness when they do. But don't get distraught on a day that seems like five years. Know that the years are going to fly by, so keep your head up, keep your chin up, and if you have to, do what I do. Take a nap. (laughs) You just take a nap, and in 20 minutes when you wake up, you just feel better. That's the way I self-medicate. 
I don't take a beer. I don't have a shot of whiskey. I don't take drugs. I take a nap. (laughs) And it's amazing how that works. That helps the years fly by, right? Um, So anyway, let me get back to my topic. If we could summarize, if we could summarize the final two chapters of Revelation, which is describing eternity, if we could summarize it in one word, this is the word I would summarize it in. Fellowship. Fellowship. Because these last two chapters are all about fellowship with God. For eternity. Finally, God is getting what he's desired all of this time that he's been with men, has created men, because finally he will be dwelling with men on a new heaven and a new earth, and they and we will be face to face with God in eternal fellowship. And when I have that perspective, when I can create that perspective in my mind, it helps my days here go by faster. Because I know that it's not about this what's happening around me today. It's about me living for that day when I will have fellowship with God face to face. And sometimes we struggle with that. I know we struggle with it because sometimes I struggle with it. And if I struggle with it, then I can pretty much be assured that you are as well. And sometimes what I have to do when I struggle with my desire to be in fellowship with God, sometimes I have to do exactly what Jesus told the church, the church of Ephesus in Revelations chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And this is what he said. He said, first of all, he said, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Now, I think we all probably fall into that. I know that we all get tired of living in the world that we're living in today when it's all based on evil and it's based on falsehoods. And I know we just get frustrated with that. I do. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 3, he says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and yet, and have not grown weary, yet, verse 4, yet I hold this against you, that you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Sometimes, folks, we need to go back to our first love. You need to remember what it was like when you first had Jesus come into your heart. How you felt when the load of sin and guilt was taken off you and that freedom that you felt when you first recognized that Jesus was the answer. Sometimes the daily mundaneness of life can suck that out of us. Right? And we need to know that we need to encourage. We need to do what Paul told told Timothy. We need to fan the flame. Fan back into fire the flame of your life, that first spark when you had Jesus in your life. And that will help you, it will help us all to be con- to be confident of what God has in store for us and to be looking forward to that day of fellowship with him. And how do we do that? Well, we start by studying God's word. This is why Bible study and prayer time is an important thing in your life that you really need to make it a priority. I know I can't tell you what to do, but I can encourage you to keep Bible study and prayer a daily 
part of your life. Because the more you learn about God, the more you spend time with Him, the more that you're developing this fellowship now that God wants to have with us for eternity. And it's important that we start doing that while we have the freedom of our choices to to make that happen. So that's why we study God's Word, and that's why we study about things that are so far out in the future because it helps us to give a perspective of today and makes us relevant to the world that we live in today. So with that said, let's jump into our text. Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. And we're going to read verses 5 through 8. Stand with me, if you will. And let's read these three, cha- three, three verses. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. For those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. There's the fellowship. But the cowardly, verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the source of joy that we have, knowing that you are preparing something for us that is beyond our wildest imaginations. And so, God, as we study this, I pray that you would give us that insight, that you would give us that hunger, that desire for fellowship, the same fellowship that you have with us, that same desire for fellowship. Help us to have it now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So John heard the voice of the one who was seated on the throne, that would be Jesus, and he's declaring, I am making everything new. Now, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, about the new heavens and the new earth, and so now we have to think about what he's making new. And I think the biggest challenge that we all have in this whole process is the process of being patient. (laughs) I like new things. I like to open a new box of whatever it is, and I like to put things together. And I even read instructions sometimes. Because if I don't read instructions, I'll end up putting it together about five times. Yeah. And I've learned, I'm old enough to realize that sometimes men should read instructions. But I like putting together new things. But I, but it's hard sometimes to be patient in the new things that God has in store for us. We're going to have a new body. We're going to have a new heart. We're going to have a new desire. We're we're not going to have a desire for sin. We're not going to have a desire for anything fleshly. We're going to have a desire for God and for all eternity. But let me ask the question here. Is there anything new or anything that's not going to be new in the new heavens and the new earth? And it sounds like a trick question because God said, I'm making everything new. But let me just share with you one thing that's not going to be new. The only thing that will transfer from this world to the next that's not new is your relationships. Relationships first with God through Christ and then your relationships with people. That's the only thing we can take with us that won't be new because we're going to have a remembrance 
of our relationships with people while we're on earth. And the only and the reason that our relationship with Christ won't be new is because without that we wouldn't get there in the first place. The only why the only way we're going to get there and to see what John is describing as a new heavens and a new earth is if we have an ongoing relationship now that will transfer into the new heavens and a new earth as we are raptured from the from this age into the next and all the things that happen it all happens because we have a relationship with Christ. Therefore, that will that will be that will not be new. And for that reason, I think it makes it even more obvious why why Satan spends so much time trying to destroy these very relationships. That's why Satan's number one goal is to destroy your relationship with God, and he does it through lots of devious ways. Not only does he want to destroy your relationship with God, but he wants to destroy your relationship with people. That's why gossip is so dangerous. That's why backbiting is so so dangerous. That's why grumbling is so dangerous, because it's typically about people. And Satan is right there trying to destroy that because he knows that that's one, that, that relationship with God first, people second, is the only thing that will travel with you into the new heavens and the new earth. Everything else will be made new. That's a takeaway from this. That's why we need to talk about things a thousand years from now because that helps us keep our relationships pure here. It helps us keep our relationships with people and proper understanding and proper perspective. We can begin now to practice that and we should be doing that. And then John goes on and then he says in verse 5, then he said, Christ said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, I find it interesting that sometimes John doesn't have to write things down, and sometimes he does have to write things down. So why now is God saying to John, write this down? Do you think it's because God was going to forget what he said? Do you think that John is writing this down because God's a forgetful God? Or do you think he's saying write it down because we're forgetful people? Maybe we need to read things over and over and over again because we forget what we read or we forget what we hear. So he says, write this down, John, because these words are true and they're trustworthy and I want you to read them over and over and over again. So he said, write this down for our benefit because sometimes we need to write notes to ourselves, right? I know... I'm not a real good person. I don't do that well, but I know someone who does. And she happens to be sitting in this room. And she does a great job writing notes to herself. I come up and I see the notes on the, on the, on the, on the counter in the morning when I get up normally before she does. And I see her list of things to do. And I know she's going to get those things done. And I don't know why I don't learn from her. But we need to write things down. And then he said in verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I love that word, done. Now what does it mean? You see, when God declares something as being done, it has a special meaning in that it means that it, it can never be undone. 
What God declares as done can never be undone. And this is the final setting here that we're talking about because this is the relationship that will never change. We've never experienced that before. We can never really uh, truly comprehend what it means to have something done that is never changing because even if I write something down, I have a tendency to forget what I wrote down or I have a tendency to forget what I wrote or even to read it. Therefore, I can undo things that I think are done. And it can become very unsettling for people because it sounds like I've forgotten and probably I have. But yet when God says it is done, it is done. And it's never going to be undone. Thank the Lord for that. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Do you know what that means? It means that God was before time was ever created, and God will be forever thereafter as well. And the way that I can best understand this is a snow globe. I find myself... This is a great word picture for me, because let me describe to you the way I see life and time and God in eternity. See, I live in a snow globe. I I have a beginning of my day on the left side of the snow globe, and the end of my day would be the right side of the snow globe, and that would be my death, and everything that happens in my life happens in that snow globe, right? Yet God is not inside the snow globe, God is outside of the snow globe. He, therefore, if he's, if he gets outside of the snow globe looking down on it, as we would look down on a snow globe, we could see the beginning and we could see the end and we could see the present all at the same time. That's the way God sees things. That's why he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, because he sees the beginning from the end and everything in between, and we're living in that snow globe of life. Does that mean that God predestines me? No. That has nothing to do with predestination. Because even in the snow globe of my life, when I come to a road and I can go left or right, God doesn't make me go left or right. I have the power to choose to go left and right. And just for the fact that God is outside of my time, outside of my snow globe, and happened to see that I was going to take a right, he didn't make me take that right turn. I took it. So he's not controlling my day. He just knows what my choices are going to be before I make them. Because he's what? He's outside of time. He's not, he's not limited by time, and he's not under the time constraints that we are. He created that. And on a greater scale, a bigger scale of all creation, all of this world is a snow globe. He created it. He's outside of the time. God is not impacted by the things that happen on our time scale. He's not impacted by the things that happen in our political world. He's not impacted by the things that are happening by that men control. God is outside of that time element. And why is that important? It's important because that's the kind of God I want to trust in. I want to trust in a God that's bigger than me. I don't want a God in my snow globe with me. I want to know he's outside of it and he's watching over me and he's taking care of me, but he's bigger than my snow globe. 
And he's bigger than the snow globe of this of this world. And that is why I can trust him. And that's why I can have joy in his security, because I know that he's not limited or constrained by time or anything of that nature. Does that make sense? Does that give you a sense of hope that he's bigger than our problems? Then he goes on to say in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. You know, thirst is an interesting experience for humans. I think we can all associate what it means to be thirsty. Can you Have you ever really been dehydrated to the point that all you can think about is water? And you know what's amazing about that? The best water that you drink tastes like nothing. <laughs> if you have to, if the water tastes, if, if you can taste the water, it's really not good water. You, you want water that has no taste. Now that's just an opinion. I like water that doesn't taste. But you know, there's something about an illustration that God uses about to, to the thirsty, he will give water without cost because he understands the element of thirst because it needs to be quenched. Jesus, on his road through Samaria, stopped. And remember, we know the story of him, his conversation with the woman at the well. Remember that conversation he had when, and this woman came to draw water from the well, and she was drawing water, and, and he asked her for a cup of water, and, and she was going to give him the water. And then he said, well, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for the water, because I'll give you water that will, you'll never You'll never thirst again. So what did Jesus mean by that? John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, this is the account. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the water that Jesus is describing to this woman there at that Samaritan well, it's the same water that will be giving and a new heavens and a new earth because it is that spiritual water that will dwell in us eternally and will continually quench our thirst. So I, I don't think Jesus really meant that we'll never thirst. I think what he meant is that our thirst will constantly be quenched. As we dwell with him, that we'll have a living water living up within us that will quench the thirst that we have for spiritual things. And they will never be unsatisfied. The same spring of eternal life is, is talked about in Revelation chapter 22 that we'll get to in a week or two. But it says, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, we'll talk about that in a week or two, but that's going to be an amazing, amazing sight to behold. This river flowing down this mountain that'll be... 1,400 miles long or so. I mean, it's just going to be an amazing thing. But the most appealing thing about this to me is that with everything being done and unchanging here with the nature of God, it's also the fact that I will never have to pay for this water. It's free. I will never not be able to quench my thirst because I can't afford it. 
There are some things in life that we like, that we want, that we just can't afford, right? But when we get to that new heavens and a new earth, the things that are the most important to us, we will have an unlimited supply that we will never have to ask, we'll never have to beg, we'll never have to go without, because we're going to have this unlimited supply of God's grace and his greatness and his mercy and his love and it's all we are going to have a, a, a continual quenching of our spiritual thirst and that just gives me hope it gives me joy to know that this is not my life what I'm seeing out here I don't have to worry about what I can't buy here I don't have to worry about that because there's going to come a day when I won't even care about this anyways All that matters is my hunger and thirst for Christ and that spiritual quenching of that thirst. And that's going to be an awesome day. Because now he goes in verse 7. He says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So now we can see the call of fellowship. The King King James Version says, he who overcomes shall inherit all these things, and I will be his God. And you can see the, the call towards fellowship. That's it's what God is asking for us. Now, we're going to turn a corner here now. Okay, we've been describing something which is, I think is glorious and great. But now John says some things that may not seem like it fits here. If there are some that are victorious and those that are overcomers, that must mean that there are some that aren't victorious and aren't overcomers. And what is, what is that all about? Why would John all of a sudden stop as he's describing the greatness of heaven and now bring it back to the downer of the fact that some people aren't going to be there? You see, the victorious and the overcomers will inherit everything that we've been describing. And they will be sons and daughters of God, and therefore they will enjoy that eternal fellowship with God. And that's our goal, right? That's what we did, that's what we should be desiring. But what about the ones that aren't victorious and aren't overcomers? Who are they? And what is their plight going to be? We find that in verse 8, he tell, he gives us a list now of who of those that will not be in this new heaven and a new earth. He says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and this would be their second death. So this brings us very quickly back to the reality of living today for tomorrow. We've been talking about the new heavens and the new earth and describing the purpose and the people that will be there but verse 8 brings us back to the reality of not everybody is going to experience this. Heaven is being prepared for a very select group of people, a group of people that have washed their sin-stained clothes in the blood of Christ and are forgiven. And this requires, by the way, a daily washing of ourself, not a one-time, one, not a one-time done thing, but a daily washing. And we will then be victorious in that time. But I think it's important that we talk about this list a little bit more. The first one that's listed on this list is cowardly. Cowardly. Now, I find this to be very interesting. Because in today's world of evil, 
the world calls the Christians the cowards. We're considered the ones that need the crutch, right? We can't handle life. So yeah, you cowards, you go to church. That we're the ones afraid of our own shadows. And we need the church to protect us. But in reality, let's talk about reality. In reality, a true believer is not a coward. The cowardly are the ones that self-medicate. The cowardly are the ones that can't handle life. And so they're the ones that go to sex or to drugs or to alcohol or find some other way to deal with life because they can't handle it on their own. But yet they call the one that goes to church the coward. Do you see how backwards that is? You see, it takes strength and it takes being unafraid of what people think of you to be a true believer in Christ. And that is anything but a coward. And I think we all know how hard it can be sometimes to stand up for Christ on the job. When everybody's telling their jokes and laughing and having a good time, and then all of a sudden, you know, they look at us and we're not participating in that. And they, they want to know, what's wrong with you, you, you know, chicken liver? Or whatever they call you. I don't know. That's a funny word. Why, what's it, why are we chicken livers anyways? I don't know. But, but proclaiming Christ in a dark world is not an easy thing to do. In fact, Mark 8.38, it says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. So cowardly are not Christians. Cowardly are those, anyone but a Christian. And then he says, the unbelievers. The unbeliever is listed as the second category of people that won't be in that time. You see, cowardly people and unbelievers, we don't, we don't rank them with the murderers. We don't rank them with the vile. I know a lot of really nice people and really good people that just aren't believers. I think we all know those kind of people, right? They're so good they don't think they need to believe. They're so good they don't think they need to have a relationship with Christ. I think it's sad to say that there's going to be a lot of good Really, really good people in hell. People that we wouldn't think that should be because they're good people. The list continues with the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. And this is not even an inclusive list. This is just starting it. But the fact is, guys, sin is sin. Sin is sin. All people that refuse to acknowledge their sin and ask Christ to forgive them will be listed in those that will not be in heaven, but rather consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So when I say that, in light of that, let me ask you, will there be those that have murdered in heaven? Will be there, will be there those that have committed adultery in heaven? Will there be those that worshipped idols in heaven? 
And what about liars? Do you think liars will be in heaven or have told a lie? See, I think that we have to look at it this way. Yes, there will be people that have committed murder in heaven. There will be people that have done vile things in heaven, not because their sin was okay, but because they dealt with their sin while they were on earth. They're the ones that are brave enough to deal with their sin, to say, hey, I've done a wrong thing. You know, it takes a pretty big man to say you're sorry. If you want to really test yourself, how difficult is it to tell someone that you love that you've messed up? It's hard sometimes to say you're sorry. So when we go back to those, that group of people, the cowardly and the unbelieving, why do you think they are listed before the murderers and the others? Why do you think they're listed first? I think they're listed first, not because of the seriousness of the crime, but I think they're listed first because it's going to be the quantity of the people. I think there are going to be a lot more really, really good people in hell than murderers. I think there are going to be a lot of really nice people in hell than those that we think should be there. You see, sin doesn't have to be qualified as being bad enough. It just needs to be unaccounted for. And I think that that's the thing that that's why we, I think that's why John kind of, put it right now in this place of considering heaven and hell, that we would look at it and say, guys, who do you really think you are? A person may think they're a good enough person, but if a person doesn't account for their sin, they're not going to be accounted for in heaven. You see, people would say, well, I'm a really good person. I'm faithful to my spouse. I've raised a good family. I kept a good job. I even go to church. In fact, I even put money in the offering a little bit, right? But none of those reasons are good enough to get a person to heaven unless that person has dealt with the sin of an unbeliever or the sin of being a coward. That's why I think cowards and unbelievers are listed first in that list because there's going to be more of them than more of the others. And that's the saddest part of it to me. So that when the question is posed to a person's need of forgiveness... They may think they don't need to make the choice on the matter. But let me just say this. A non-choice is a choice. And it isn't a good choice. Because there aren't three choices. You can't say this, that, or that, or, or something else. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a choice of heaven or choice of hell. One of the two. And the only way you're going to get from one place to the other is by accounting for your sin. And that's why the unbelievers and the cowardly are going to be of higher quantity in hell than the vile and the murderers and the sexually immoral people. Because basically, listen, guys, even in our life today, I can lie. And and I can lie, and it's almost acceptable today. <laughs> in our society today, it's almost, if not acceptable, to be a liar and not even be ashamed of it anymore. Isn't that a shame? Our politicians, I mean, sometimes they lie right to your face and they don't even, it's part of the job. See, but that's not something that we should hold lightly. Jackie, would you come please?
So the reason that a person that committed murder may be in heaven and not committed and not, and not be consigned to hell is because they made the choice to account for that sin. And that's something that we all need to do. That it's seeing sin as sin and not that my sin is bad enough or my sin isn't, isn't that bad. That's why the cowardly and the unbelieving are listed first. And that's why there are going to be a lot of good people in hell. So what do we do now with this? What do we do with this? It's one thing for us to think about heaven. It's another thing to actually make it our eternal home. And I think it's something that we need to be honest with ourselves. And we need to take the time to examine our hearts and our lives today because it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in our societal issues and just to be like the majority of people. And if it furthers my cause to lie a little bit, then it's easy to lie a little bit. If I a little if I don't want to stand for Christ in a job because it might put me on the outside a little bit, it's easy for me to be cowardly a little bit, right? Do we know what that means? Do you know where I'm going with this? So if we truly want to be listed with those that are going to be the overcomers, then we need to be living our lives today that we would be hearing Christ say, well done, thy good and faithful. And the only way we're going to hear him say that is for us to be good and faithful in the moment, in the day. This is a great opportunity for us to take communion today. Why? Because communion isn't for the perfect. Communion is for the forgiven. And uh, this is something that we need to cherish because this is an opportunity for us to dwell a little bit in this moment of self-evaluation and to really examine our hearts. And and I, I wish, I feel bad for those that aren't in church. I know some people will watch this online and, and I pray they get something out of the message, but this is the most important part is what we're going to do right now is that we're going to take a couple minutes and we're just going to sit in our seat where we're at. And if we were 30, 40, 50 years ago, we would be asked to turn around and kneel at your seat. Right? Remember that? Everybody just turn around and kneel at your seat and let's just pray a little bit. In fact, let's just do that. Let's be retro here a little bit. Just take the time and make your seat an altar. And just spend a few minutes here evaluating your life, asking the Lord to to do a deep dive. And Where am I at? Am I a liar and don't know it? Has it just become part of my nature? Do I idolize things more than God here? That's an idolater. Let's just, while Jackie and Tom play, let's just take a couple minutes. If you would, if you can, just turn around and kneel at your seat. And let's just pray a little bit here and do a little self-evaluation. Then we'll have communion.
says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we prepare for communion this morning. He says, For I have received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he goes on to say something very significant, very important for us today. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But here's the hope. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Amen. That's why communion is so important. Would you stand, come down to the front, and let's just have this time together. We've done, we've, we've been biblical. We've taken account of ourselves today. And we've examined ourselves. And, and here's the deal. Come on, if you would. And here's the deal. It's not that you're perfect. It's just that you're forgiven. None of us are worthy in our own right to be partaking of this table. Only by the blood of Christ. And for the fact that we've taken our sin into account for. And we've asked Jesus to forgive us of our sin. Can we come into this table and not be judged?
Father, we just thank you for that promise and that hope that we know that you are preparing a place for us and we are rightly inhabitants of it. Not because of who we are, but because of what you've done in our lives. And we're thankful for that. So go with us today as we go into our homes this week, as we go into our place of business. Lord, help us to be bold for you. Help us not to be cowardly. Help us to be believers in what you've said and help us to be appliers of what we're reading and studying. And I pray, God, your blessing upon us today as we look forward to what's ahead because what's better is yet to come the best is yet to come and we're just trusting you in all of this and we give you thanks and we give you praise and everyone said amen